So we are continuing in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis right now. We are going to today get through the end of chapter 2. And it is my hope that as we do so together, that we will capture what it is that God has for us here in this text. This is not an unfamiliar text to most of you. In fact, even here we have covered it in many different ways and different times and teaching on the family and marriage and so forth. So this is an important text for us that we have spent a lot of time on in the past. It's a very foundational text. In fact, it's one of the main reasons that we are doing Genesis together verse by verse so that we can glean important truths from the beginning of God's Word. There are essential paradigms that show up here in these texts, which are essential for not only the rest of the understanding of the Bible, but for our faith, even more importantly. One of the things that we have been discussing throughout this entire time together in Genesis is to try to, as much as possible, recapture what it was that Moses was trying to say as he wrote this text some 3,500 years ago. As we consider the audience to which Moses wrote, the Hebrew people who are wandering around somewhat homeless, somewhat aimlessly at times, for they were aiming for Canaan, and of course most of the generation that came out of Egypt would not make it into Canaan. They would not be able to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. What was it that Moses was trying to say to these people? This is a very interesting and unique group of people. They had been rescued by God's promises. He had promised Abraham that he would build a nation from his progeny, and he had done just that. They had grown exceedingly large. But during their time of exile, if you will, in the land of Egypt, they had become slaves. They had become encultured at times in a place that was very anti-Yahweh, very anti-God. They had not known what it was like to have direct revelation for the most part. They had not known what it was like to live under God's covenant care. In fact, they had been abused, and they had been surrounded by many false deities. But God sent his servant Moses to rescue them, and he brings them out with a mighty hand, crushing their enemies, showing himself to be strong on their behalf. He fed them when they were hungry. And it wasn't because of their strength, it wasn't because of their work, it wasn't because of their purchasing power. He gave them drink when there was no drink to be found. And through sustaining their bodies with food from heaven and drink from rocks, he demonstrated to them that he was for them. So throughout this entire period of judging Egypt, of crushing Pharaoh and his armies, of feeding his people, of sustaining them, when their sandals didn't wear out and their tunics didn't have holes in them, despite their unfaithfulness at different periods when they grumbled against God and did not believe his word, whenever he commanded them to take the promised land under his mighty care, but they cowered in disbelief, when they turned to false idols and worshipped things that represented the one true God but in fact were not the one true God, Through all this period, God had been faithful to them. And so Moses writes this story. It's a true story, but it's a story nonetheless, and it tells them of their origins. It tells them of their beginnings. And as I've been saying to you over the past many weeks, truly, these first two chapters declare to us 
what God is like. So why did Moses write these words? He wrote these words so that the Hebrew people, wandering along in their sojourn, somewhat aimlessly, often faithlessly, would be reminded of the greatness, and even much more than that, the goodness of their God. So as Moses recounts the details of creation, and basically the details are rather scanty. They're not, they're not there in great and profuse detail, but there's broad strokes. And in the broad strokes, God declares how great he is and particularly how good he is. And I think that is very true in the verses that we're going to discuss together today in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. So this little add-on, if you will, at the end of chapter 2 is, is not an addendum. It's not an appendix. It's not a little romantic story to tag on to the end so that you'll pay attention to it. This is true often in our stories today, especially movies and in literature. If you want to get people really excited about some sort of crime drama or some sort of like war movie, you just add a little bit of romance in there and the guy can get his girlfriend to go with him to the movie. That's not what's going on here. God's not saying, okay, let me intrigue you just a little bit by, by adding a little bit of romance. No, in fact, I think, I think this ending of chapter 2 is really, really essential to the story. Because it demonstrates to Israel, to the Hebrew people, what it was like to have a family unit and how God designed it with great purpose. So the shape of this entire narrative, this story, that God had made all things ends with this crescendo. So this is not an addendum, it's not an appendix. This is the point to which God has been moving through Moses' pen. And the crescendo is this. God has placed his affections upon mankind uniquely. They are his image bearers. He loves them and he will love the world through them. We have been discussing over the past couple of weeks that truly all of creation declares to us that God is abundantly gracious. We've used the word effusively. God is effusively gracious. He's constantly pouring his grace out upon humanity. So what did the Hebrew people need to know? They needed to know that their God was mighty and he was uniquely strong. This was important to them because as they looked back on Egypt, Egypt seemed to have it all together. And how quickly the Hebrew people forgot that the one true God had shown all those gods of Egypt to be false gods. But they looked back with fondness, having forgotten that the one true God proved himself to be true and righteous and just. And now they were getting ready to enter into a land where they would be competing with many more false deities. They, they abounded. And the Hebrew people needed to know that their God was the one true God. But he wasn't just a powerful God. He was a covenant-keeping God. And as we said last week, that is why, as you came into the section that we came into last week, beginning in verse 4, that Moses not only calls him God, but calls him the Lord God. In other words, not only is he almighty God, he is the covenant-keeping, gracious God who is for Israel. And Israel would not have missed this as they would have heard the law read to them. Their mighty God, and even more importantly in this section, their covenant-keeping God was for them and with them and would always be near them. So how does the 
recording of the creation of the first woman. We've talked about the creation of Adam so far. How does the creation of the first woman and then God bringing them together in marriage, how does this declare the glory of God? If, if this entire section is about the glory of God being on display, how does marriage itself, how does this crescendo of moving toward the first human relationship declare the glory of God? Well, that will be our task to uncover today. I've already said to you, if you want to add intrigue to any story, just add some romance into it. But really, any good story has some kind of love in it. It could be sibling love. It could be the love of a father or mother for their children or vice versa. Often, a lot of our stories include romantic love in one way or another. In fact, a lot of us won't even bother reading a story or going to a movie unless there's love worth fighting for. When it's date night for us and we try to go on consistent dates because it's important for our marriage, sometimes we'll talk about going to a movie. I keep up with these things more. Whitney could not possibly care less. And so she'll ask me, well, what's the movie about? And really what she wants to know is, is there love in it? And so, you know, she doesn't want to go to a movie where there's just, like, a lot of shooting and, like, a lot of intrigue. She wants to make sure that, that there's, like, a love story in it. And then she might ask me this question, does it end happily? Because not only does she want there to be love, she wants there to be happy love. So a lot of us won't even bother going to see such a thing or read such a story unless there's something in it that points to the reality, the groundedness of love, and perhaps even more importantly, romantic love. Stories without heroes or heroines fighting for the ones they love or striving to get another person to love them the way that they love that person, sometimes those stories aren't even any good at all. In fact, a lot of our best stories include love in one way or another. As you consider the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, most of us love this story, whether you've read it in print or seen it on the screen. You have the love between Sam and Frodo. Or the band of travelers together. You have the love of the king for the fairy princess. Even in our great epic battle movies like Braveheart, he's driven by love for a woman. And every Disney story is about what? The princess getting her hero in one way or another. This is is driven down deep into our DNA. There's something within us that resounds Whenever we see love on the screen or on the page. And this story, this this crescendo element of this narrative points us to deep love. But mysteriously, it's not just about the love that the man has for the woman or the woman for the man. It becomes a means whereby we understand the depths of actual love, the groundedness of the reality of love which exists within God himself. And I think that's why the narrative ends on this note. It's why it crescendos like this. Why did God create Adam and why did he create a woman for him? As I've already said, this is rooted in the nature of the Trinity, of God himself. It demonstrates to us that he created us with the capacity to love intensely, just like he always has. Therefore, marriage becomes a means whereby we can understand the depths and the mystery of the love that God himself has, in which he has built 
into us as his image bearers. Let's read the text together. This is God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now remember, in the first six days of creation, he has spoken of the goodness of what he has seen. But now he says, It is not good. He's not speaking somehow of deficiency in the sense that it's evil or morally corrupted, but it's not yet quite complete. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word. The first thing I think that Moses wants us to see in this text, and there's different ways we could outline this, but I want to put three basic things in front of you today to help you understand the shape of this text. As those that bear God's image, we are intensely relational. As those that bear bear God's image, we are intensely relational. Back in chapter 1, we have learned that we are created in the image of God, uniquely so. God made all that we see, but he stamped his image upon us. And the basic argument that we had through that text is that when we speak of being created in God's image, what we mean is that we're like God in many ways. Now, certainly there are deficiencies in us, especially post-fall, that do not resemble the image of God. But there are many things about us, even post-fall, which represent what it's like to live in God's image. We are like God in many ways. And what is God if he is not intensely Relational. We have talked really about this at length. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father right before his arrest and eventual crucifixion. And he says this to the Father at the end of his prayer. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Father I desire that they also whom you have given me. May be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me. Because you loved me. Before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Think about the primary thing that was on the mind of Jesus as he went away. He certainly wanted the Father to glorify himself, 
being the Father, and then Jesus himself through the crucifixion. But he also prays on behalf of his followers, and he prays this prayer of of intimate love. And what he's asking the Father, what he's petitioning the Father for, is that through this redemptive work, that they would begin to understand, at least in part, what it was like to live within the orbit of the Godhead. And the Son of God says, You have loved me eternally, and you love me still, and I have loved you, and we are one. And I ask that that this oneness, this, this depth of intimate love would be shared through our followers, and then through them to others. And as we have said, this is much like God's love cascading down from Father to Son to Spirit who spills it out on the world that we might spill it out on others around us. And so the Son of God, through His crucifixion, proclaims that love is about to break in in new and profound ways. In many ways, what he's doing is he's reversing the effects of the curse and bringing back people into union, into intimacy with God. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come in chapter 3. So, as those that bear God's image, we are intensely relational. Why? Because that's the way that God is. And that's the way he made us to be. This is why we, we ache for meaningful human connections. And I think in strange ways, even those who seem to not have that ache for meaningful human relationships do, but they just quite can't put their finger on it and articulate what the ache really is. Perhaps because there was something that happened along the way in their nurture and their developmental phases where, where love was deficiently missing. As Whitney and I are preparing for our children to come home from Ethiopia at some point in the hopefully in the hopeful near future, one of the things that we have been learning about and, and reading about is the fact that our children may may be suffering from this thing called detachment disorder, or they will not have the ability to attach properly to human relationships. And we are prepared for that. These children may have been abandoned, they may have been abused, they may may have been wrongly used in all kinds of ways. They may have never known the love of a parent. And it may take quite a long time for these children to attach to us as family. This is very normal within the orphan community, which is astoundingly and always increasing in numbers. It's up to like 152, 154 million now orphans globally. And many, many of them suffer from this detachment disorder where they're unable to to create human relationships that are meaningful and deep and trusting because they've never seen it. So we all know people in some way or another that that are sort of aloof. They're they're kind of hermit-like. They're the kind of people that might live in a shack on the side of a mountain and have like food flown into them once a month and that's all they want. But something happened along the way to make them that way because that's not the norm. And I think in many ways the exception proves the rule the exception of knowing a few people out there who are relationally challenged proves the rule, which is that most of us ache and long for human relationships. Isn't it interesting in many ways that now in the West that we are, we are digitizing this? We are, we are putting it in the kind of mediums where we try to manufacture things quickly, safely, 
without a mess. This is why Facebook works. It's why social media itself works. But the reality is it doesn't work. But it, it's, it's sort of this little temporary chronological window in the span of human history into where we are right now. We're, we're craving connections. That's why when those that we love the most say the wrong things to us or treat us in the wrong way, it hurts the most. God made us to be like him and he made us to love intensely. This explains why a parent loves a child. Why a child conversely loves a parent. It explains why you can love a friend so deeply. It explains why siblings can love one another. It explains even more importantly, of course, in this text, why a husband can have an unexplainable, a hard-to-articulate kind of love for his wife and then her for him. This is grounded in who God is. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always adored the Father. The Spirit becomes the medium through which they love one another and then the world that they have created. And as image bearers, we are to rest in that kind of love, both back toward him and then toward one another. As Adam looks around him, there's no one quite like him, so God brings all the animals in front of him, parades them one by one. And as Adam gives them names, not because God wasn't creative, not because God was still resting, because he wanted Adam to recognize that there was nothing yet in the created order which corresponded to him. He was amazed by the massiveness of the elephants, by the beauty of the various winged birds, by the complexity of all that he saw. And as a good steward, as a representative of God who was exercising authority, he named them all. But in representing God and naming all these animals and being a good steward and caring for them, we've already talked about the fact that work existed before the fall. Adam's working here. But through his work, he recognizes lack. And the lack is that there's no one quite like him. The wallabies have corresponding partners and the possums and the birds and the slithering things, but Adam doesn't. And he creates for the first time within Adam this, this unexplained longing for something corresponding to him. And God gives him some divine anesthesia, puts him to sleep, takes a rib from his side. In the original language, this might have been more than just a rib. It might have been like his whole side. Some commentators go so far as to say that God clove Adam in two and made Eve out of the other half. That's probably a little bit extreme. But he took some chunk out of Adam and made the woman from him. Not from his head that she would rule over him, not from his foot that he would step on her, but from his side that she would be his intimate companion. And he begins to help Adam to understand what he himself was like, what God himself is like. And for the first time, Adam begins to understand the Godhead, the nature of the love of his creator in a way that he could not possibly have understood it before. So as God's people, as the ones upon whom he has stamped his image, we see the creation of the woman as a reminder that God himself is intensely relational. And in this, we find that marriage is a unique relationship that was designed for our joy. I think that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. 
You notice when Adam wakes up and he finds this amazing surprise standing next to him. He exclaims, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first human poetry. And he speaks it in in exultation. Both in wonder that this creature before him is, is like him but not quite like him. But also in exultation to God for having made her. You see, the joy that is elicited from Adam's lips is just a demonstration, a projection of what he felt inside. I have a box that sits in our crawl space that I get out from time to time. And it's a collection of of all the romantic things I wrote to my wife during our dating period. There's poems and little things that I drew. and, And I'm bad at both. and I'm beyond bad at both. But, but back in the day, especially at our um, somewhat crazy fundamentalist college, we basically couldn't even you know, see each other, let alone touch or you know, say anything very meaningful. So you wrote things down a lot. In fact, there was this system that ran between our, our dorms, which were on like extreme opposite parts of the campus because you, know, you couldn't corrupt people by putting them anywhere close to one another like the opposite sex. So there were these people that would run back and forth at night in the dark with these boxes with notes. And, you know, if you were a girl, this is a true story, and this happened in the 90s, um, the 1990s. And so girls would, like, spray perfume on their note, and the note would come, and it would be to the boyfriend, and, you know, sometimes you'd, you know, reciprocate and send a note. And in this note, it would, it would have, like, very meaningful things. And, and you know what it's like during your dating period when you really find the, the one, you know, the one you really believe that you love? And, and it's hard to even express how, how you feel, you know? And so you use lots of, of, of things to modify your sentences. Like, I really, really, really think you're great. And I, I really, really, really think you're special. And just so you know, I love you very, 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 very much. And there's lots of XOs, XOs, because you're trying to go to this intense degree of articulation. It's, it's an expression of this projection of love from God down into you, which you're now beginning to understand in these horizontal relationships. And that's why God gave them. So marriage was uniquely given that we might live in relational harmony, and that brings us joy. God God created us with intense longings, and, and marriage sort of uniquely satisfies that. But, but that itself lifts our eyes to the Creator who made us that way. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Eve was like Adam, but not just like him. The idea here is that she's his counterpart and his partner. One commentator calls her his counterpartner. So she's like him. She's his helper. She's not subservient to him. But she's going to help him accomplish the things he's supposed to accomplish both in his stewardship of creation, of course also procreation, which we saw back in chapter 1. They're to repopulate the earth. But she's different than him. And this difference excites him and it completes him. This text, though it does not go into great detail, is a text which calls us to heterosexuality. It's a text which calls us to monogamy, 
You'll find this in verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So some of the essential components of our relationships, our marriage relationships, are grounded in the first one. And these things reflect the glory of our great and gracious God. This does not mean that failures in these areas of heterosexuality or monogamy cannot be forgiven. We'll talk about that more as well. But it does mean that this was the original design. And anything that runs counter to that is against God's will and must be repented of. The intensity and intimacy of this relationship was unique and would remain so. This does not mean that people that do not marry cannot understand the depths of love. That would be a mistake as you gaze into this text. But while we understand that not everyone will, will seek for, that not everyone will enjoy marital bliss, it does not mean that everybody who has been married has even had bliss to begin with. It, we have to say that we don't apologize for the nature of, of love that is existing in the unique bonds of matrimony. So we, we, we run a tightrope here to some degree. Not everyone who's been married has been happy. Not every happy person will be married. And yet God brings happiness through marriage, and we maintain all those things in great tension. Adam is going to now learn to give himself for this woman. He already has. He gave part of himself that she might be created. And ultimately now, as he lives in intimate relationship with her, isn't truly this the proclamation of creation itself? Isn't creation a constant reminder of the greatness and the goodness of God? And isn't that what marriage is? Marriage becomes this human drama, which we'll talk about in just a moment, through which we, we see God declaring his love upon humanity, that, that these upon whom he has projected his image are those who understand him best, and whenever they relate to one another in, in intimate marital love, they reflect what he is like. You see this on wedding day. One of the things that we do in premarital counseling is we say to the person who is about to get married, would you like us to use traditional vows or would you like to write your own? And it's always kind of interesting, and usually you can tell by a person's personality the way they're going to go with this. The more conservative people that don't like to talk in front of people, they just say, go find something that sounds really you know, good and just use that and we'll repeat it after you. But then you've got some creative people from time to time that like to write their own in fact, we're going through this right now with one of the couples that we're counseling. And, and they, they like to say through their vows what they feel about each other. So it's like this 30-second or 60-second little manifesto or speech where they try to put down in human language how they feel about this other person at one of the most epic moments of their life. And it's always really interesting to see what they're going to write. And usually it involves something like, I was nothing before I found you. And then in you I found everything, and if I didn't have you, I would be nothing, and if I ever lose you, I will you know, be completely worthless, so please stay with me, and I will always stay with you. It always involves something around those lines, and if you're looking at like doing your vows or renewing them, just follow that outline and you'll be fine. But you know what it's like when you're out there in the crowd and, you know, guys, you're you know, stifling under the summer sun and girls, you're wearing your sundress and, and you, you look at this and you're like, oh, that is so beautiful and it's so sweet and 
I don't even care that we're going to go eat ribs in like an hour because right now we're captured in this moment where these people are proclaiming their love for one another. And then you look at each other and you smile because you remember what it was like for you. And I think that's what Adam is doing here. He, he doesn't know what else to say except just to pour his heart out. In exultation, both because of what God has done for him and what now he understands in new ways about God. So as, though the, as those that bear God's image, we are intensely relational. And marriage itself is a unique relationship that was designed for our joy. And thirdly today, and this is where we'll park here at the end, marriage is a uniquely human drama that directs our longings to Christ. Marriage is a uniquely human drama that directs our longings to Christ. This does not mean that other species, other animals don't have counterparts. They do. But humans alone have this unique relationship which, which dramatizes God's love for his people. In fact, there's something special about marriage that is unlike any other relationship. And while we maintain that you can understand love if you're not married, of course you can. There's something unique about marriage which should lift our eyes to what God is like. So once we get married, once we've said our perfectly crafted vows and enter into the reality of marriage, sometimes the sheen is worn off. Sometimes the luster stops glistening and marriage gets hard. No longer are you writing notes and spraying perfume on them. No longer are you enjoying each other's company at every turn. No longer are you thinking about the best thing that you can say to your spouse to get them to like you more. Now you're dealing with their sin every day. Now they're dealing with yours. And marriage gets hard. Now I do not want to imply by this that marriage is all bad for it. It's certainly not. But marriage is hard, right? For those who have been married for a while, we know that. And we don't do anybody any good, especially ourselves, when we act like it's perfect. And it's interesting here in verse 25 that there's a hint of that. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, which is a good thing. But the converse of this, the thing that corresponds to this negatively, is that there's the idea of shame. And of course, if you know the story, we'll find out about that in chapter 3. So Moses is subtly saying, shame is coming. We'll talk more about that in days to come. But I want to hint at it today. After a while, our relationships, and specifically our marriages, can sort of lose their storybook-like feeling. After a while, as everybody said, the luster can wear off, the sheen can wear off. And we feel the tragedy that's hinted at in verse 25. Marriage is hard. This is interesting that those you love the most can hurt you the most. You who can speak such blessing through the wedding vows can turn around and use that same tongue flowing out of that same reservoir of your heart and speak cursing instead. I have seen marriages come back together in great intimacy in my family room through counseling. I have seen marriages rend apart in that same room. 
I have seen couples look at each other in front of me like I'm not even there and speak words of repentance and bless one another with forgiveness. And I have seen people shout at each other from the other end of the couch telling them that they're going to kill them. Homicide, literally. How can that be? We explain this, of course, by the infection of sin that enters into the picture. Isn't it interesting that if you think about it, you might consider that God and his great wisdom would not create this problem. He knew sin would come. He knew that sin would infect the created order. He knew that sin would infect marriages. So why not just not get married? Why not even make marriage possible in the first place? That's the point. Because through our marriages, we learn what it's like to experience the grace of God. Marriage can be so fulfilling and yet be accompanied by such great heartache. But the joy of unique intimacy with our spouses, a spouse who is flawed, just like we are flawed, living together in the divine drama of God's love for his people, uniquely pictured in marriage, lifts our eyes, excites our tastes for our eternal oneness with God himself again. Paul hints at this in Ephesians 5. Let's turn there together. You're quite familiar with this text, but maybe the Spirit will allow us to see it with fresh eyes today. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. Paul is saying in verse 32 that though marriage is given for things like procreation, relational intimacy, the good of culture and society, that God had divine theological reasoning behind it. In other words, there was gospel shape to it. That's why God went ahead and did it, rather than not doing it, even though it would bring great pain, even though all of those of us who are married have experienced that pain in one degree or another. Because through this divine drama of our marriages, we begin to understand what it's like to interact with another who is broken and sinful. But for those of us who are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, 
because of his atoning work on the cross and his powerful resurrection, we say to our spouse when they fall through their sinful habits, through the things that bug us and annoy us and that we hate, through unfaithfulness, through brokenness, through pain and tragedy, you have Jesus. He will never leave you, and I won't either. And marriage becomes this glue which holds society together from flying apart just like God holds us together in Christ and we are not torn apart. Our marriages are the reminder on a human level, on this human plane of what it's like to relate to another. And husbands... As you love your broken wife who is imperfect, who will never quite respect you like you want. I'm just going to disabuse you of that notion. And wives, as you respect your husbands who will never quite love you like you want. I disabuse you of that notion too. What does it remind you of? Why is there an ache for a perfectly respectful wife? Why is there a longing for a perfectly romantic husband? Why? Because though these relationships are fulfilling, the longing lifts our eyes to something greater and better. And along the way, as marriages heal, along the way, as people learn to live together in selflessness, overlooking faults, repenting and forgiving, and doing it again every day. It reminds us of the love that God has for us in Christ, that he loves us despite our sins. In fact, in our rebellion and in our sinfulness, he came down not because we were lovely, not because we were seeking a suitor, at least not him, but he came And tore us away from all of our false idols, all of our sinful suitors, all of our false substitutionary gods. And he ripped us away and brought us back to himself and loved us intensely, loves us forever, and will never let us go. That's the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what marriage points us to. And as the church, we worship him often not very faithfully, but we worship him nonetheless because he's so kind and so good. And what does this call us to? It calls us to faithful worship as the church because of what he's done for us. For he is not only creator, we've seen him to be that. Jesus himself shines before there were even astral bodies in chapter 1. The light of the world was brought to bear on the world to bring it into shape. But he's not just creator. He is bridegroom. He is husband. He is savior. And we see all of this subtly with eyes now, with the full lens of the scripture, back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And the grand narrative takes on new significance. For yes, God is gracious to give us photosynthesis and the changing of the seasons and vegetables and meat to eat and oceans and mountains to astound us and their majesty and beauty. But God is most gracious and making us his own and creating a human relationship that though the brokenness would surely come even a chapter later, that through this relationship we understand what newness and reconciliation and depths of love and forgiveness are all about. 
So creation, and now this crescendo of verses 18 through 25 of Genesis chapter 2, shout to us that God is not only powerful, but God is good. This concept of Jesus being a bridegroom to the church, or God generally being a husband to his people, is not a new concept. You see this throughout the Old Testament. God has joined Israel to himself to be his bride. She often wanders from him, but he pursues her nonetheless. This finds its greatest articulation, its greatest example, of course, when Jesus gives himself for the church. So yes, as I've already said, marriage is for each other's joy. It's great to have somebody love you. It's great to have the warmth of an embrace, the, the loving tingle of a, of a nice kiss when you come home at night. It's nice to have someone to share your dreams with. It's nice to have someone who knows you and still likes you anyway. Marriage is for that. It's nice to be able to bring more little image bearers into the world for God's glory and for our own. But according to Paul here in Ephesians chapter 5, there's something even deeper than that. I think this is hinted at in Matthew chapter 22. Same day, the Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. And the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They're trying to trip them up here because they don't believe in an eternal state. And so they're saying, you know, they're creating this sort of nonsensical question to stump him so that he looks foolish and proves their point. Here's what he says. You are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. From the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I must admit, this is one of those passages that I don't like that much because I don't quite understand it. I have tried to think of clever ways to exegete it, to explain it, that don't go along the common line. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is that in the eternal state, when Jesus comes to recreate the earth and we dwell in his presence, that there won't be this thing called marriage. For those of you who like your spouse, not just today, but most of the time, you don't really like that. At least I don't. I look at that and I'm like, I don't really get that. I mean, how could I not love Whitney the most? Like when the kids are second and everybody else is beyond that. But how can that be? How could I forget is this just some metaphor going on? Is, is Jesus saying something hyperbolic to prove an extreme point? I still haven't come to full grips with this. And I, I've talked to God about this one. And those of you who are getting ready to get married soon, you know, go ahead and do it. But, but the basic point seems to be that when it's all said and done and we're with Jesus forever, we're not going to have marriages anymore. If you have a way of explaining this away, you can come see me afterward. But that seems to be what he's saying. How can that be? If he made it at the beginning, before there was any sin, 
Why wouldn't it be at the end when there is no sin again? But just a basic reading, surface reading of this text, it seems to be that that's not going to be the case. Why? It seems that even in Adam and Eve's perfection, before there was the fall, that things were still incomplete. Things weren't quite like they would be. And though we see correspondence between Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22, they seem to bookend the Bible with similar themes, even similar symbols show up, that Genesis 1 and 2 are not the perfect. Revelation 21 and 22 are the perfect. So that our marriages themselves are temporary. And that one day, because of the power of God, you see that on the screen in front of you in this text, God will allow us to live in such intimacy with himself and with one another that we won't be heartbroken. This text makes my heart hurt because I love my wife so much. But it seems to be, Jesus is saying, that the power of God is so strong that when we are with him forever, that we will understand love to such an intimate degree that will lack nothing. Which means that what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 5 is much bigger, much more grand, much more intimate and deeply satisfying than we can even comprehend now. Because there's coming a day when we will dwell with Jesus forever and we will enjoy that. And that is the height of love. Turn with me please to Revelation chapter 19. In this text, John is recording that the great prostitute Babylon, whoever that is, has been judged. And now God's people cry out in great exultation and exaltation to God for what he has done to rescue them and to bring justice down upon sinners. And in verse 6, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This will happen. This takes away some of the sting of a passage like Matthew chapter 22. And it's the finality of what Paul hints at in Ephesians chapter 5. And it's the, it's the fixing, it's the repairing of what's hinted at in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. That though everything started off so well, tragedy enters the scene. And though our marriages, hopefully, by and large, are marked by joy, there is heartache there. And through the joy, and through the heartache, through the drama of human marriage, our eyes are lifted to the one who has married us to himself and will one day rescue us from all that is broken. And we will enjoy him as the bridegroom forever. So, We bear God's image, and this explains why we are so intensely relational. God gave us marriage as a unique relationship that was designed for our joy, 
and marriage is a uniquely human drama that directs our longings to Christ, ultimately. What about now? What about while we wait for that? What about now while we wait for the finality of the bridegroom to come get us? Well, as image bearers who have been given relationships, and specifically marriage, we show forth his image. We glorify the glorious one when we love our spouses with intense longing. This means that you are to uniquely, specifically, discriminately love your spouse alone this way. When your heart is wandering, you beg the Spirit for help, and you renew your commitment to that spouse. You are to love them intensely. This means that you have to be deliberate. It means you have to know one another. It means you have to talk to one another. It means you have to spend time together with one another. Is there coldness today in your marriage? Have you allowed that to creep in? You could be sitting together or near one another today and there could be a lot of frigid temperature going on in your home. Husbands, I will challenge you, just as Christ gave himself for the church and was the initiator of that relationship, you get things moving once again. Do not wait on your wife to do this. You are the leader of this home. And in one way or another, you will answer not only for your own shortcomings, but for hers as well, because God has placed the responsibility upon you. And just like Jesus came down and deliberately initiated the relationship, you must do the same, and you must maintain it with fidelity and intensity. If there is this frigid temperature going on, reach out for help if you need it, and let us help you. We image forth the Creator not only when we love each other intensely, but when we learn each other's fears and dreams and then provide loyal companionship anyway. Why do I say it that way? Because we have unique fears. Usually, my fears are not my wife's fears. My dreams sometimes are not hers. And yet, she's been a loyal companion to me anyway. So first, learn what these fears and dreams are. Ask. That sounds like something you might see in a Jane Austen novel. But it's something that you should do anyway. Ask. And if you feel like it'd be corny for your spouse to ask you or to ask your spouse, what are your fears and dreams, do it anyway. One of the biggest problems we have in our marriage is that we don't talk and we're afraid to because it sounds corny. Quit. Ask. What are you afraid of? What would you like to see happen in our relationship that hasn't happened? How would you like to see me change to help you with these things? And then be loyal along the way. We image forth our Creator when we sacrifice our prerogatives for them. It's very difficult to be a selfless spouse, isn't it? Doesn't marriage reveal this all the time, just how selfish we are? I think often we enter into marriage, even if you've had really good premarital counseling, thinking that this person's going to do these things for me, and they're going to they're complete me. And it's all about me, me, me. And along the way, in God's great mercy, what does he declare to you through all the heartache? That it's not all about you, you, you. 
And along the way, if you're understanding the gospel shape to your marriage, you learn little by little to sacrifice your prerogatives for the good of another. Isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus laid aside his prerogatives for us that we might come back to the Father. We could say much more, but I'll say this last thing. We image forth our Creator when we know all about the shortcomings of our spouse. And yet, in light of all the shortcomings, not ignoring them, knowing them full well, we envelop them with grace. We remind them that that they are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And as we remind them that they are already robed in the righteousness of Jesus, that we will be for them as well. For we too are recipients of grace, not because we deserve it, but because he has granted it. And if we are robed, and if they are robed already in the imputed righteousness of Jesus, we do well to remind them that despite their shortcomings, even though we know them full well, we'll always be near them. And even more importantly, Jesus will always be near them. That their bridegroom is coming back for them, And he's going to sing over them, even though they're broken, even though they have shortcomings. And we will gather around our wife, who is our sister, and our husband, who is our brother, around the wedding feast table of Jesus, and we will enjoy him forever. That's Genesis chapter 2. Yes, God is powerfully great, but God is so abundantly good. And even marriage points to this, both in the good times and in the bad. So what does all this do? It lifts our eyes to the one who graciously made us, who gave us these hearts with the capacity to love so intensely, and who through the very fabric of these relationships teaches us about his love. And we experience this most clearly, of course, through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So the crescendo of the story of the first couple speaks to us of God's great and beautiful design. But it speaks to us of God himself, that he is a lover of people. And he made people knowing full well that they would run from him. But he created this relationship that we might hang together and love one another and support one another, envelop one another with the intense love of Jesus, which is the grandest love of all. And our marriages are to shore forth that kind of love. We're going to pray in just a moment. The kids will join us after that so that we can partake of the table together. We'll bring the elements up. And as we pray, I want you to take a few moments to consider as we prepare to partake from the table what God has done for you in Christ. I want you to remember his great and deep love for you. In just a moment, we will come to receive freely from the table, for Jesus has freely and graciously and abundantly loved us, and we come today in faith to receive it. And then very practically speaking, I want you to consider today, how are you loving the one who is maybe sitting right next to you today? Is there work that needs to be done? Are you loving intensely? Are you bearing with one another? Are you pointing one another to, despite your shortcomings, the grace of Jesus who has enveloped you and robed you with his righteousness. So maybe there's some work that needs to be done in the days ahead. I suspect that all of us have a long, long way to go. But may God be gracious to teach us about his love that he has shown us in Christ. 
And may he help us to reflect that to one another. Let's pray.